0: Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders
1: and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. Today,
0: we're talking about empathy. Our guest today is Michelle Borba, the author of Unselfie and End Peer Cruelty, Build Empathy. Normally, we banter for a bit here and catch up on all that's going on in the midst of a global pandemic. But today, we're switching it up You're going to hear first from our guest and then we'll talk about what feelings and ideas came up for us during the interview. Up
1: next is our chat with Michelle and we'll catch up with you all after our conversation with her.
0: Dr. Michelle Borba is an internationally recognized expert and author on children's, teens, parenting, bullying, and most importantly right now, moral development. Her work aims to help strengthen children's character and resilience, build strong families, create compassionate and just schools cultures, and reduce peer cruelty. Her practical research-based advice is called from a career of working with over 1 million parents and educators worldwide. She is the author of Unselfie and End Peer Cruelty, Build Empathy, among others. Thank you so much for being here with us, Michelle. Oh, I am so delighted to talk to you again. Thank you. So let's start with your your main premise in life is like, let's talk about empathy and why is it important? I don't think there's anything more
2: important right now than this immensely human trait called empathy. When we look at what is going to help us stay strong and and really bounce back, it's empathy. What is at the emphasis of why we're having such race riots and wars? It's because of a lack of empathy. And so I think it's one thing that we as a group of parents better take up and tune up because it can be cultivated, it can be caught, our kids are hardwired for it, but we seem to be putting it in dormant stage and that's why it's diminished 40% in the last 30 years in American kids.
0: So you talk about empathy being a verb, I need a little more explanation about that. Some of the best moments in my life have always come from
2: kids. So I actually was viewing schools all over the world and I was up in Canada. The superintendent said, you have got to get into the third grade class because they're teaching emotional literacy in the most profound way you possibly can. So I walked in, sat in the middle of the great big green rug with these precious third graders and they were telling me that their teacher was about ready to arrive and she was going to teach them emotional literacy. door opened and in walked a mom with a baby. The mom puts the baby on the middle of the rug. I sat there with my mouth open for the next 30 minutes because the baby was the teacher on teaching the kids emotional literacy. So the real teacher, who was the adult, she was wonderful, walks in, sits down with the kids and goes, well, how does Clara seem to feel today? See, Clara comes in each month and the kids have adopted Clara as their baby. And all the kids zero in and they start talking about emotions. She, she looks frustrated. Why? Well, because her hands are all in a fist. Or, she looks anxious. They had wonderful, wonderful emotional terms, which is really the seeds for empathy. This program has now been used with about 800,000 kids around the world. But the takeaway was I turned to the little guy next to me and said, why does this work? And he said, well, you know, Clara's learning empathy. And I was sitting there saying to myself, I don't think it's just Clara, but I was really nice and cautious. And I said, yeah, but why does it work? He said, well, it works as empathy is a verb. And when I asked him, what does that mean? He said, well, you don't learn it on a worksheet or like a lecture. You learn it by seeing it and feeling it. And we're learning it from Clara. It was the greatest takeaway I've ever heard because once I learned that, I realized that's what we're doing wrong. We're making it into a little six o'clock. Now let's talk about empathy, kids. When in reality, our children need to experience it and feel it in order to buy into it. They were using a baby, but there's lots of other ways that we can help our kids. So let's talk about
1: that idea of feeling it and seeing it in a world that has gone to Zoom and
2: video. Yep. <laughs> um,
1: so can you tell us when there's less opportunities to be face to face? How do we do that?
2: Well, the first thing is we've got to know exactly what that kid says. Empathy is a verb, and they start to need to low feelings. You know, I just did a survey of 100 kids across the U.S. before COVID, and I said, I understand you're the most stressed-out generation known to man. Do you agree? Every teen said, yeah. I said, what's causing it? And every kid said, because we are not learning enough how to connect with each other. It's all digital and not face-to-face. That alone was the wake-up. Because you can't feel with another, which is what empathy is, unless you can learn to read their feelings, like on the baby. So when I said, how do you do that? Or what are some other ways? They said, well, you can still use Zoom and you can still use uh, you know, FaceTime, but we gotta be a little more deliberate. For instance, when we're talking to our friends, we've got to tune into them and we've got to look at them because you don't learn empathy from emojis. You've got to be able to just start. Then they began to give me ideas. Watch that movie Inside Out and and understand emotions or look at it and start talking about it far more naturally because you'll never get the ability to feel with another unless you can go. He sounds upset. Or she looks really frustrated. Or look at the way she's standing. She looks really anxious. Once we have those words, it'll open up the doors so that it's the gateway to empathy. First thing is just talk emotions far more naturally with their kids.
0: So in your research, you uncovered that teenagers who exhibit deep empathy all had the same nine habits. So let's go through what those are. Let's start with number one, which you call emotional literacy.
2: Emotional literacy is the gateway to empathy. It's just really being able to understand words or emotional literacy. So I understand how you feel. I can see it on your face. I can read it in your voice tone. That's the gateway because now you can read it and feel it.
0: Can you give an example of that?
2: Sure, dad comes home from, from work and the kid looks at dad and goes to says to himself, he looks a little stressed, it's probably not a good time to ask for an allowance. <laughs> you sit and you watch, um, you're sitting there listening to your friend on the phone, which is a, not a real thing that a lot of teens do these days, but as you listen, you start to hear stress or you start to hear frustration and you say, I gotta ask him how he's feeling because he doesn't sound like he's doing really well. That emotional literacy, though, words of feeling are critical because they help push a child to be able to act.
1: All right. So let's go to the second one, Michelle, moral identity. What does it mean?
2: Moral identity is understanding who you are. It's really developing a moral code or an ethical form of here's what I am all about. That is instilled usually from our parents. In fact, when we look at who are altruists, who people who really stand up and do the right thing. In almost every case, those are individuals who say that that was just how I was raised, which is absolutely an amazing concept. So it's talking to your kids about what your family believes in, showing them. This is the perfect moment in terms of when we're in the middle of racism and riots. It's that was unfair or in our family, we believe in justice or whatever it is. Make sure you talk to your kids because your voice and your values start to be embedded in your child. You act how you see yourself to be.
1: And let's talk specifically about teens as it relates to that. You know, they would be the first ones to say, well, that may be your belief, but it's not my belief.
2: The interesting thing about it is If you keep instilling basic beliefs, the kid will buy into it. You can't be dictatorial about it or you know that they're going to tune off immediately. But when you just talk naturally about it and never a lecture or you start to have those wonderful moments when you're watching Shawshank Redemption or you're reading... Whatever book it is together the hate you give, those are incredible opportunities to hear where your kid is and what they believe. And in fact, many of our teens are far more giving. They're far more into perspective taking than we were and far more accepting. We do know that. But we do need to really help them identify that belief system because it'll guide their behavior patterns. So the third thing out of nine is perspective taking. That is the cognitive ability to understand where another person is coming from. And I think this is a really important point to keep in mind because a lot of parents go, oh, my kid's not the crying type. Or he, I remember him even when he watched Bambi as a kid and he never looked like he was upset. That's affective empathy where you can feel it and read it off of your children's face. Many of our teens have that ability, but it doesn't mean that if you're not crying and sobbing during the moments of right now that you don't have empathy. The cognitive side is perspective taking where you try to figure out where is he coming from? Why does he feel that way? That seems to be absolutely critical. In fact, Harvard says that's the top employability factor. And we do know that teens, particularly around 13 years of age, start to go down a little bit in that, but they'll go back up into it naturally. So it's a core moment where you can really talk about division, when you can talk about differences, when you can use everyday moments that are happening on the news, or you can even flip from Fox to CNN to MSNBC, and you can have your kids hear different bo- viewpoints. Debate is an incredible opportunity right now for kids. You, you can't correct them, but hear where their views
0: are, because that is essential. So one of the things about my teenagers, I don't know if they reflect all teenagers, is that they didn't want to engage in the conversations with me. And if I particularly said, wow, how'd you feel about that? I could get like a fine as an answer, but I would hear them talking to other people and I would hear that perspective. Yep,
2: and that's absolutely wonderful. And that's normal because these are the ages when they pull away from us and they try to hear where their peers are coming from. And there are some parents that are doing some interesting takes on that. One of the things that one mom decided to do for teen boys was actually create book clubs, but they were ones that they really had to figure out what the heck a boy is going to read at that age. But it was, she was going to serve the pizza, they were going to rotate. Just houses each each week, but they were going to give kids opportunities to just talk. Now, that was a group of kids who liked to read, other kids that maybe film, other kids that go take them to some kind of a museum expedition. But it's different ways to get kids involved and hearing their views or at least practicing their views. I love that. All right. So the fourth one is moral imagination. What does that mean? I love this one as the ex-teacher, because what they actually did was put us adults into MRIs. And what they did is they watched parts of our brains where actually compassion is. And those of us who read literary fiction, that would be not, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey and a Daniel Daniel Steele Beach read, but like To Kill a Mockingbird or All the Light You Cannot See when we were When we heard different passages the brain actually lit up so it's a takeaway because one of the things our kids are saying is they don't have enough opportunity to read for pleasure they're reading the hardcore stuff that's required but not the things that may ignite their empathy levels and that's why many of the kids younger kids say wonder is one of the best books they ever read because they get into the shoes of another person when i ask middle school kids about what books are the best for moral imagination Outsiders, 50 years ago, continues to be one of their top ones that they recommend. And I asked why. I said, because it's the ability to get into somebody else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. They get inclusion and pulling away, and they understand that. So it's finding something that resonates with your kids, using that, because moral imagination is one of the best ways we do know to ignite empathy in kids.
0: Wonder certainly
2: did that for my family. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful? And that's why everybody's reading Harry Potter. They love Harry Potter, but it's finding the books that resonate
0: with a kid. Okay. So self-regulation. And I know one of the examples you give around self-regulation is breathing techniques, which I am finding that I'm a failure at this. So I would love to hear (laughs) um, how you do it well and why it's important for building empathy. Okay. First of all, Self-regulation is obviously
2: being able to calm and cope in terms of adversity or everyday life, keeping stress down so anxiety doesn't rise. Why is that important for a teen? Because one out of three kids, we now know teens, are suffering from some kind of stress. And every one of the kids I interviewed said, but nobody's teaching us how. Or they're doing it so it's like a a one-time lesson, but it's not a habit. The best way I've ever learned on self-regulation actually was working on army bases and it was Navy SEALs who taught it to me. They said that they were retrained in order to keep their stress down because if stress builds, cognitive abilities go out. So our kids are going to be in major obstacles. We also know that as stress builds, empathy goes down because you're in survival mode and you're trying to cope. Navy SEALs said the best thing is first, identify your stress signs. It's different for everybody. Kids need to identify theirs right before they blow or get really irritated or start huffing and puffing. What happened to them? And that's going to take a while for a teen to figure that one out. But it could be that sometimes it's rapid breathing or you can see their face start to flutter or I've seen some teens, they start to rock or grind their teeth. Those are the moments when you start to subtly point out, hey, you're starting to get stressed or please let me know what my stress signs are so you're not always pointing out to them. And then, what a Navy SEAL says is you immediately take a slow, deep breath from real deep, but you need to take it up like you're like blowing a flower. Blowing on a flower is really a good one. Just smelling the flower, rising it up, and now hold it. Now, slowly let it out. That's the fastest way to relax. But a Navy SEAL says it needs to be a one, two breath. It's a slow, deep breath up, hold it for at least a count of two, and then exhale so it's twice as long as you inhale. If you continue to do that in practice, what happens is that that relaxation process kicks in, and it's the fastest way to reduce the stress. Does it work for all teens? No. Some kids say they like it. Some kids said they like meditation. Some kids said they hate it. They like yoga better. It's trying to find what helps your teen learn to regulate so that it becomes a habit and they use the rest of their lives. I love that you use the word practice because it, it
1: implies that, one, you have to do it that way. That's how you get better at it. And it leads really nicely into this idea of practicing kindness, which is the sixth one on your list. Obviously, we know what kindness is, but let's talk about practicing it.
2: Practicing it means that the more you do any behavior, the more it becomes a routine and it becomes a habit. And that's what we're trying to help our kids do. Now, what about kindness? It's not the, the everyday little things that we're making the kids do, but it's simple things that just ignite empathy. And what we've discovered is that just a smile or eye contact or opening a door, if it becomes a routine... Actually, what it happens is the kid begins to develop what's called a caring mindset. He sees himself as a kind and caring person. So he's more likely to continue the habit because he sees the impact on others. That sounds so simple, but it's so, so powerful. In fact, one of the things that we know that we may be doing wrong is that studies of teens of our middle school and our high school kids said we spend so much time, according to the teens talking about their grades and their test scores and what you get, that we don't reinforce that kindness part of them nearly enough. And only 20% of American kids say that we think it even matters. So we need to take that up and at least start instilling it or, or reinforcing it so our children do see it matters because it starts to create this trajectory so it opens empathy.
0: So our kids are not thinking that we as the adults think it's important. They think that we think the grades are more important? Absolutely. That was done by Harvard. They post they interviewed really
2: dozens and dozens of kids across the US in different demographics from poverty to privilege. They asked them what matters most in your house, the achievement, that you're happy, that you're kind and caring. Only 20% of American kids thought kind and caring mattered by us in our own home. It is a big ouch. Because the real big ouch is when the researchers went and asked us, your kids said it doesn't matter. All of us sat there with our mouth open. It does matter, we said. But the problem is our message isn't getting through to our kids because we're spending so much time talking about the the test score and the grade that it's sort of lying dormant in, in, in our home.
0: Okay. Well, the the next one is collaboration. And you say it's about connecting with people who don't look like you. That's one part of it. Collaboration at the
2: beginning part. First of all, we know that people who collaborate, who learn to get along with each other, because empathy is we, not me, are far more likely to develop that empathy and feel with others. Now, the other thing that we've discovered is that too often, according to our kids, we're pitting them against each other because it's such a competitive world that they aren't learning the skills of collaboration. Instead, they're learning the skills of competition. So if there's one little point way back when on how we create a kid who is more empathetic and more open to differences, whether it's gender or race or age or culture, First is exposing kids early with those experiences. Just remember like the baby, the more it's a verb, the better. It's opening them up so that they begin to see and feel comfortable with differences. But the other thing is when they start to point out the difference, one of the simplest ways we've discovered to open their hearts is to immediately say, so find out what you have in common. Not focus on the difference, like he has different color skin, or he likes soccer and I like baseball, or she only likes to read Harry Potter books and I only like mysteries. So figure out one thing you have in common. Once we discover that commonality, it opens up a child's heart and they begin to see that we're far more alike than different.
1: So the next one, number eight, which is so relevant right now, uh, moral courage. Tell us what that means, especially in the world we are
2: living in right now. Why we want our children to be empathetic isn't just because it's nice and soft and fluffy, but it's transformational. And when they have those beginning skills and all those habits that we've been talking about, it starts to ignite the last two, which are the critical ones for now, which are really lying dormant. And that is a child who has empathy is also a child who's going to be able to stand up and speak out and do the right thing when the moment comes. That's a child who's an upstander. And He helps others. And when he sees something wrong, he says, that's not right. Now, there's a couple of things about that that are absolutely critical. Teens say they desperately want moral courage. They want that. But they said, the problem is nobody's teaching us how. And the hardest thing is to speak out. But one of the most interesting things I did was a Dateline special with middle school kids. When we actually taught children how to speak up and stand out. And they said, don't just tell me to to say no, tell me some other things. I said, okay, the first thing you need to know is that the bigger the crowd, the more likely you will think that somebody else is going to speak out. That's called the diffusion of responsibility. So the first thing you got to know is if ever you're in a situation where you're with a lot of people, don't wait for somebody else to speak out. You be the one to guide them. Now, that said, that's not so easy. One of the easiest things you can do is not say anything. But for instance, if bullying is happening, don't give the power to the bully. Uh Uh-uh. Don't go standing by that person because that's exactly what that guy wants. He wants the power. Instead, walk toward the kid who is the target. Walk toward that person Put your hand on that person or say, do you need something? Or just be silent and just beckon others to join you. You'll draw the other kids toward the other way. That's moral courage and you can do it silently. If you see something that's wrong and you know that somebody could be hurt, then you could also exit. You can sneak out the other way. And I've seen a lot of teens do that, but they're not sneaking out and walking away. They're sneaking out to go get help. They're sneaking out to to hit 911. They're sneaking out to do the right thing. If you want to speak out, that's the hardest thing. Feel free, because when I was doing that Dateline special, I saw the most amazing kid named Lucy. Not only did she speak out, because we had hired actors to portray a bully, And that kid was doing a brilliant job on another kid who was an actor to portray being a target. Lucy couldn't stand it. But what I saw Lucy's face was empathy. She felt so distressed for the victim. She walked right up to that victim. She said, can I do something for you? What do you need? When adult walked in, she immediately told the adult, don't let this kid get the job. By the way, all the kids thought they were there to audition for a reality show, which wasn't there. We were really trying to figure out whether or not the kid had the moral courage. But Lucy's father, in the background, started to jump up and cry. I've never seen anything like it, I can't even get through the story. When he saw his daughter through a, through a closed feed monitor, be the empathetic kid, he said, oh my God, I love that child! You have no idea how much time we spend in our house talking about moral courage, how much time we practice how to be moral courageous, how much time we do service, And it was that aha moment for Lucy was empathetic because she'd learned that that skill mattered. She had the moral identity that's habit number two because it had been instilled in her. Her dad was modeling it, but he also was teaching her how to speak out and do the right thing. That's what we may be failing with our kids. And boy, do they need that right now. They need to know how
0: to be courageous when push comes to shove. I, too, love Lucy. And it that story also brought me to tears. So we are now on the ninth one, the last one of the nine habits that all empathetic kids have, altruistic leadership abilities. An altruistic leader is a child who
2: wants to make a difference in the world, not a kid who wants to win a Nobel Peace Prize. But that child, we do know, has almost always had a parent who's figured out what, pushes his heartstrings? Where are his concerns? I know that because I was writing the book on selfie. I interviewed 50 kids, all of whom were what the teacher said, altruistic leaders. And everyone said, go find out how that kid became that way. And each time I asked a child, I understand that you have this amazing, wonderful ability to be compassionate and want to make a difference in the world. How'd you get that way? They all laughed and said it was how I was raised. I said, oh, please, praise, do tell. They said, well, my my mom or my dad, they had me go do service projects with them, but they never said we're going to go do this one based on what my mom wanted. They did it based on what they thought I loved and wanted. For instance, one kid told me that um, they happened to be just driving around one day and uh, the mom had a couple of extra overcoats. And there was a man who was standing on a street who looked homeless. He was, looked destitute. And the boy said, please, mom, can you stop a minute? Bless the mother, because she stopped the car. He said, can I take this coat? She said, sure. He gave the coat to the man. He said the look in the man's eyes where he got a little teary-eyed and he, he thanked me. But it was this one moment that I went, oh, my gosh, I can make a difference in somebody else's life. I got back in the car. I I couldn't stop being a little teary-eyed, but I kept looking out my rearview mirror. And as my mom drove away, the man kept waving and he looked so happy. And that was the moment I said, I got to do more. Each child did it a different way, reached out in a different way, but it was always guided by their heart. And uh, each child at that moment, I think, was a kid who changed their world, saw that they can make a difference. And it was this golden moment of seeing we, not me in the world. That's the kind of kid I think we want. A child who realized there's hope because I can do something where there is injustice or do something when people aren't being treated fairly. If we don't have that moment of you can do something, what begins to happen is the child becomes very pessimistic, not optimistic. But the, the only final thing I will tell you is that all of research says it always starts with one, one moment where the child like that gives the overcoat and he sees I can make a difference on that one man space, not the thousands of their destitute or, or the thousands who are being treated unfairly. But if you can start with one, it becomes this transformational moment where the child almost always goes back and says, we got to do more, mom.
1: We always ask our guests, what is the biggest parenting myth?
2: Oh, thank you for asking that, because I think the biggest parenting myth or the ones that I'm seeing, is that every parent thinks that empathy is all locked into DNA, or it can't be cultivated, and I think that's the biggest myth that we're up against, is that because we think there's nothing we can do about it, we begin to make it lie dormant, or think somebody is just going to happen naturally, and it doesn't. Empathy must be cultivated. It's dropped 40% in American kids in the last 30 years. Empathy is what gives our kids a sustainability. It gives our kids resilience. It helps them bounce back. And I think it's the piece that kids need now more than ever. So don't let that myth get in your way of helping your child be strong. It's not soft and fluffy. It is the transformational piece that is immensely human. And right now, I don't think there's been a time that our kids needed now more than ever.
0: Dr. Michelle Borba, I don't think I've ever thought so much and so deeply about empathy as the time spent with you, and I really feel changed because of it. So thank you very much for being here. And for anybody who's looking for more, check out her book, Unselfie. Thanks so much.
1: Raising kids is hard. Raising kids in a pandemic is even harder. As a mom, one of my worries has always been, is my kid in the right place for him or her? I've seen firsthand what a new setting can do for a kid's growth and confidence. That's why I love Laurel Springs School. Laurel Springs School is a private school with an accredited online program. Kids can maintain a flexible schedule while growing both academically and personally. They can progress through the material at a pace that's in line with their skills. This means that your child can pursue their outside
0: interests and excel academically. Online learning might be new for your family, but Laurel Springs has been doing this for nearly 30 years. As the experts in online learning, Laurel Springs has the tools and the curriculum your child needs to maintain their learning unhindered by whatever the future holds. Visit them at laurelsprings.com. So Steph, I don't know. I found that one really moving. How about you? So moving. I felt myself tearing up a couple times. I know. I did not expect that when I was preparing for it. I just, I listened to her speak about this topic so many times. And I think even for Michelle, you know, that today's events are just overwhelming all of us. Like I feel a little fragile. Some of the stuff that she was talking about really made me think about, have I done a good job with my kids are we as a family doing the right thing in society and as people, you know? And uh, yeah, I would say we keep asking the
1: same question around here, which is, what are we doing? How do we do it daily, <laughs> whatever that is? And how do we know if what we're doing is impactful or making a difference? And maybe you never know. I don't I don't know. Um, and I think it touches on what you just said, which is, are we doing the right things with our kids and...
0: I, you know, it's just, it's so, it keeps taking my breath away is how I would. And not a good way. I've been noticing with my kids, like, so the things that I have always been involved in, my kids wanted nothing to do with and other people's kids would be involved. And I always felt a little bit badly, like, why aren't my kids coming? But for people who are feeling the same way, what I can tell you is as they get older, they have found their own things. They're not the things that I chose and they're so committed to them, and they're so passionate about it. And when it came to where are we going to give our money right now, my kids kept sending me where they've given their money. And I was, I was so touched by how much, how many, and what they know about what's going on in this country around race and how committed they feel to making a change. And in fact, one of my kids, I don't know if this is a big deal to other people, but I found it so touching. She went on one of her social media accounts, and just put out there: Does anybody want to be in a book club with me reading the books about race right now? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it's. Um, yeah, it goes back to being fragile. It's when I see our kids, how outraged they are at what's going on. I I want to cheer, right? I want to cheer and say, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that this upsets you, that this riles you up. And then on the other hand, I'm devastated that that's what it's doing. Just everything is so fraught with emotion, right? Nothing is, um, you know, and, you know, and of course the pandemic we've been, Sue, you and I have been saying this for weeks, months now, right? That everything feels bigger and, right? So now this is, it just keep, you know, two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, I would have said, how could it be more emotional
0: than it is?
1: And here we are, right? Well, I heard
0: someone say that it's no surprise that this is happening during the pandemic because first of all, it's impacted the black community in a very different way than the white community and everybody is on edge. So it is no surprise that there's so much more vulnerability right now in general. I saw a video clip. You know how there are just those things that you you're not sure you could do? This was a moment that I I know would not be me and I'm disappointed in myself, but it's just true. A black guy crossed over the line for protesting, and a white girl went with him, and she blocked him as the cops were harassing them. And she just stood in front of him, and as they and they shoved her too, but she was like, "I'm not gonna." She knew she would not get the same treatment, and she stood there, and she was petite and and brave, brave in a way that I know I I don't think I could put myself in that situation.
1: Yeah, I think it's funny. One of the things that I um, spend a lot of time thinking about, maybe, <laughs> I mean, this is a weird thing to admit, but I often think of difficult situations in history and what would I have done? You know, as a Jew, I often think of the Holocaust, right? And you know, would I have survived that? Would I have, right? What no one knows the answer, but what what would I have done then? And I look at. Um, these heroic acts, I view as heroic acts that people have done. Uh, I think the example you just gave, and I often say, what would I do? What would I do? You know, it's a tough thing to look in the mirror and think, you know, could, would I have had the courage to do that? And, you know, I'm not sure we know till we're really tested. And I would say we are being tested right now.
0: Well, I mean, Not to justify not doing that, but I hope that we all find ways that we can do something. So while that might not be the courage I have, I hope I can find a place somewhere else to be courageous of course. Um, and and that everybody else also doesn't look at that and say, Well, I'm I can't do that. Right. And so I'm I, can't in myself right. so <laughs> that I can't do anything. So yeah. then I can't do anything. Because I think it takes all sorts of people contributing in all sorts of different ways. I mean, there are people with political power that would never put their physical body in harm's way. But I don't I don't diminish what they can change in the political sphere and look at it any differently than this girl. But you know, it was just a moment to look at it and say, Wow, that is bravery.
1: Todd and I were having the same conversation on a walk last night about everyone plays a role. And I'm with you, Sue. I I am fairly confident. In fact, I'm confident. I don't think I could do what that young lady did that you just described. But it takes people like her. It takes people, right? Like there is a continuum of people and let's hope that all of it together, we can affect movement and change.
0: Yeah, one of the things that Michelle spoke about hit me heavy because I feel like I raised my kids in a very competitive environment. And the idea that, individual gain is more important than the collective good, it pains me now to think about what contribution I made to that and thinking that my kids were deserving of certain things without looking at a bigger picture. And her idea of how we have to change that idea, the notion of collaboration has to change for the world to change. I hope you were all moved by Dr. Michelle Borba in the way that Stephanie and I were. It's a time for deep self-reflection right now and she really gave us pause to think about how we are living in the world today.
1: Yeah, and I feel a deep responsibility, and in an odd way, I also feel inspired to make change and be committed to that. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at
0: yourteenmag.com.
1: Also, if you want to receive our newsletter,
2: head
0: on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer, Michael DeAloya, plus producer, Hannah Leach, and audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can
1: find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable.
0: That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for
1: sure. You can find Guilty Greeny on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greeny challenges. Until then,
2: stay Curiously Green.